Well, if you can keep your Bibles open to Psalm 42 and 43, continue our mini kind of end of the summer series on the psalm. Last week we looked at Psalm 13, today uh, 42 and 43. Now these are two psalms, but most expositors would see these psalms as connected because of uh, the, the repetition in both of the psalms. Now it's vital for us to know the psalms and know how to apply the psalms to our emotions, to our circumstances. Just doing a little bit of, of just reading in, in one of the commentaries I, I happen to be using for this series. And, and notice this, that there was a, the Eighth Council of Toledo, which I know very little about. It happened in 653 A.D. It was ordered then that no one be promoted to any ecclesiastical position who did not perfectly know the entire collection of the Psalms. And I thought if I was just born a few hundred years earlier, I would not have been ordained. One of the Hebrew professors in, uh, when I was in seminary, Dr. Alan Ross said, learning to pray these prayers, talking about the Psalms, and singing the, the Psalms, have always been recognized to be essential to the spiritual life of believers, especially any who would lead the churches in devotion and worship. And that's why this little mini-series is so important. Yes, I think, I think you need and I need to personally be able to apply the psalm to our various circumstances and apply the character of God alongside our emotions that may be all over the place. Yes, that's really, really important. But we also need to be familiar with these psalms so that we can help others when they are in the midst of deep and dark times. Too often, I have seen believers who are well-meaning trying to help other believers who are struggling, and these are the four mistakes I see people make. I used to be part of training the care team at Stonehill Church. This was probably 10 years ago. And these are the four things I tried to help people who are in care ministry. Now, the people who were involved in care ministry were people who said, I will move into a, a person's life who's having a difficult time and visit them at the hospital or visit them in their home or pray with them, etc. And these are the four mistakes people on the care team, but even if you're not on the care team, you make when you're trying to help someone who's going through a difficult time. Here's mistake number one. Someone starts sharing their pain with you, their suffering, the various circumstances and their emotions. And 97 seconds later, the person who's listening to the story and is supposed to be the care person says, well, just remember, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Or say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I believe those promises are true, but in the first 17 minutes of somebody's trial, it's probably not the verses to go to. Here's mistake number two. Someone starts sharing their pain and their suffering, and within a few minutes, the care person says to them, 
Have you confessed all your known sin? Have you prayed in faith? Have you thanked God for all blessings? Have you, have you done this, that, and the other thing? As if our suffering, or that all of our suffering is based on our lack of performing some checklist for our own righteousness. Mistake number three. Someone starts sharing their pain and suffering, and after a few minutes, the care person says, dude, quit whining. Buck it up. Life is hard. Stop crying. Mistake number four. Someone starts sharing their pain and suffering, and the care person listens, and that's the right move initially. But then they keep listening, and all they do is listening, and all they do is affirm the sorrow and the trials that the person has, and now it's five months later, and the care person has done nothing to help the brother or sister in Christ point them to Christ, point them in the right direction. We're not simply here simply to listen, although that's the right first move. If five months later that's all you're doing, you are not actually caring for the person in pain. Thankfully, the Psalms, and I would say the rest of God's word, provides a more comprehensive guidance to match the complexity of life and how to help someone who is suffering. And that brings us to Psalm 42 and 43. And in these two Psalms, which we'll treat as one unit, uh, I want to look at three things that are absolutely important. Number one, we need to see the reality of a very common spiritual problem that we all probably will end up facing. That's what the psalmist is going to describe. The reality of their situation. We're going to look at, the psalmist does provide some reasons why this spiritual condition, this reality can happen, and then we need to learn what responses are helpful for us individually, but for us to help other people to engage in these responses that will help them through this spiritual reality that's pretty common. So let's look at this common spiritual reality. Let's look at what the psalmist describes is his spiritual condition. Look at verse 1. Uh, he is spiritually thirsty, the psalmist. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist's spiritual life is dry. He's thirsting. And it's more than simply, hey, I'd like a glass of water. He's really thirsting. He's dehydrated spiritually. Like an animal can be desperate for water when dehydrated. This psalmist is desperate for God. And it's not that the psalmist disbelieves God. He, he simply doesn't feel close to him. His relationship with God, God is dry. It's stilted. It, it's marginal. He, in a very real sense, he believes, but he's not experiencing in real time the personal living God in his daily life. And of course, we know that this is a condition for everyone in the world. One of the reasons we, we all experience, even unbelievers would experience spiritual dryness is because, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Only God can satisfy, and so it's not surprising that we might find ourselves in a spiritually dry time. The, the psalmist also depicts his spiritual condition here Three different times in both psalms using the same words. Look at verse 5. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? 
And then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He repeats this in verse 11, the last verse of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in, in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then in verse 5, at the end of Psalm 43, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is not experiencing a, 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 a vital relationship with God. His personal experience of God is dry. And that phrase, why are you cast down? Uh, this is not just a momentary, uh, you feel a little uh, blue tomorrow morning. It's a very strong word. Why are you cast down means the psalmist feels completely undone. He, he feels like he's being squeezed by his circumstances. He feels like he doesn't have a way out. It would indicate that the psalmist is spent. He's finished. No power to face the day. And God feels a million miles away. And what is fascinating about Psalm 42 and 43 is, is I don't think, and most commentators would agree, nowhere in either psalm does the psalmist give any indication that his spiritual condition has anything to do with his own sin. You gotta, you gotta, see, you gotta see that. Or you'll, you'll miss the psalm. Nowhere does it say the psalmist was necessarily negligent in his spiritual duties, per se, or that he's in some kind of terrible sin. Now, many of the psalms, that's the, that's the message. Psalm 51, when David cries out because of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he, he's clearly talking about his sin and the misery that his sin has brought to him. The psalmist has found himself spiritually dry. God seems distant, not real. His experience of God in real time has been drastically degraded. And we need to understand that this is not an uncommon reality for believers in Jesus Christ to get into this situation. Too many believers... The minute their spiritual life is a little unsteady, it feels dry, it feels stale, it feels distant. Too quickly, some of you will, will think to yourself, well, I guess I'm in some sin. Or I've been neg negligent in my spiritual duties and I better get my act together. Or, or I'm the only person who's ever experienced this and it's just not true. And some of us can push fellow believers into believing this because we either say to people, snap out of it. Or have you confessed your sin? Or we share a promise of God a little too quickly. This should encourage some of you who feel like you're almost in some kind of a spiritual depression, it's not necessarily because you've sinned, and it is the experience that many of us have, and yet we don't know that about each other because most of us don't tell the truth about how we're really feeling to one another. I promise you, there will be a lot of lying in just a few minutes in the atrium. 
Because someone's going to come up to you and say, how are you doing? And you're going to give the nice Christian Stonehill answer. I'm fine. Which could mean you are totally depressed. It could mean that you're okay. But what it usually means, I refuse to disclose the real reality of what's going on into my heart spiritually. And so I'm saying I'm, I'm fine, which means don't ask me any other questions. Thank you. This is a common spiritual reality, not necessarily driven by sin. It's what happens because we live life in a broken world. We need to understand that. We need to not panic. We need not to uh, panic other believers who may be experiencing this. We would do well to be more honest with one another in sharing this reality with one another when we find ourselves there. That's the first thing we need to look, the reality of this common spiritual experience. But the psalmist gives some reasons for why this reality, this, this common spiritual reality affects people. Now, I don't think the psalmist is trying to be um, exhaustive, and I'm not even sure the psalmist is, is that concerned about, you know, if he can understand all of the different reasons why this may be happening to him. But let me kind of show you how the psalmist, in his honesty, being poured out before God, identifies some of the possible causes and reasons for this spiritual dry condition that he finds himself in. Verse 3 is very interesting. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. The psalmist is, is clearly saying that the spiritual and emotional dress that he finds himself in, he's having trouble, um, he's having trouble eating, I think, may, maybe even sleeping. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor before he became a preacher, he preached in the middle of the 20th century in London. He was a doctor, and when he read, reads this, a text like this, he would say that the psalmist is sort of indicating there may be some physical issues related to the spiritual crisis and depression and the, the, the deep, dark time this psalmist is going through. And I, I don't have time to go into all of this, but I would encourage you to read 1 Kings 19 this afternoon. 1 Kings 19, we preached this you know, a couple of summers ago through the life of Elijah. It's interesting, Elijah is a prophet of God and he has this incredible uh, contest between the prophets of Baal and and then the prophets of of Ashtaroth and he defeats them and they're wiped out. It's one of the greatest revivals in the country. And then Elijah finds out that Jezebel, Queen Jezebel is still after him and so he runs away, he finds himself under a broom tree And he actually says to God, I wish I was dead. So he goes from the height of victory to uh, seriously spiritually depressed. And initially, God is going to help him spiritually, yes. But initially, what happens to Elijah is he falls asleep and then an angel is sent, sent to cook him a meal. Now, I wonder what the angel cooked. Angel food cake? I don't know. I don't know. But what's interesting and just in Elijah, many people have pointed out, yes, Elijah has a spiritual problem, but aggravated by a physical problem. Don't discount the physical when you find yourself in a spiritually depressed, difficult state. So 
So that's just one thing to think about as you walk through this. You may need some spiritual input, but you also may need to get, get some rest, and, and a nice meal might help you. The psalmist also mentions the absence of community as a possible contributing factor to a spiritual malaise. Verse 4, the psalmist is recounting, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is looking back upon these joyous occasions when he was in community worshiping God together with other people. But now apparently, the psalmist is not near Jerusalem, he's not near the temple, he's not near where he can enjoy that community. Look at verse 6. He says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. These are all geographical references to the far north of Israel. So it seems to me that the, the, the writer here, the psalmist, enjoyed this fellowship, but now he's isolated from his community. And that may be one of the things that's affecting him spiritually certainly does do that. I would say to you, if you've just recently moved into Princeton from somewhere else where you enjoyed a lot of community, you might be very vulnerable spiritually when you're trying to recreate community. I wanted to mention this earlier. We, we don't always have time to uh, talk about people who leave. We have enough of a transient church, but I want to mention one person who is leaving. This is their last week. Is someone who's been in our music team for a long time, and that's Emily Johnson say hi. She did not take my advice and go to a school that was close enough to Stonehill where she could continue to worship here. But Emily, I want to say thank you for all the ways you've served here, and may God bless you as you go to your school up north, Massachusetts, I think. I mean, yeah, that's great. It's great. But I would say to Emily or to anyone else who is contemplating moving from where you had a lot of community to not, you are probably in a vulnerable situation. You will be. And you could find yourself like the psalmist, feeling isolated from God. Not because God's moved, but because you've moved and your community that reinforced sort of believing and, and the throng worshiping together is not with you anymore. So be mindful of that. The psalmist has also experienced some pushback from enemies. He has an enemy who's mocking his faith. The enemy is saying in verse 3, where is your God? At the end of verse 3. And again in verse 9, the, the enemy is mocking him. You know, why do I go mourning at the end of verse 9? Because of the oppression of the enemy. And again they question him in verse 10, his enemies, where is your God? They're saying to this, to the psalmist, all day long. That can also be part of the circumstantial sort of reasons why you find yourself in a spiritually dry time. One more thing. It also seems like the psalmist is uh, that the joy of worshiping God, he's absent his community, he has an enemy who's taunting him, but the circumstances of his life seem to be crashing around him that, that are drowning out his own worship of God, his own sense of God's presence. Take a look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep. 
at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. There's a sense in which God has allowed these difficult circumstances to, to, to overcome this believer, this, this psalmist. And the waterfalls, which may actually have been literal. He's up in the north. He may be at the headwaters of, of, of the waters that come down into, uh, to, into Israel, to Jerusalem. He is uh, the, the opposition, the lack of community, his sense of being cast down and away from God is overwhelming his ability to experience, hear, and sense the presence of God. And so he found his situation is tenuous and spiritually deadening. Those are some of the reasons that we can find ourselves in a spiritually difficult, dry situation that leaves us feeling like God is not with us. So now let's move to the responses that the psalmist will take himself and I think recommends to us. And I want to show you three important responses that we need to take in the midst of a spiritually dry and depressing time, but also what we need to encourage those around us to take those same responses to deal with this spiritual reality that is common to our experience. So let's look at these three responses. The first is this. You, and we mentioned, <laughs> mentioned this last week, and part of the Psalms models this for us, is that the first response that you need to continue to do even when you feel distant from God is to pour out your heart to God. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. The, spirit, the psalmist is feeling distant from God. He believes in God, but he feels distant. He's dry. God is not really satisfying him in a real-time manner. And what does the psalmist continue to do? Pour out his heart to God. If you're here this morning or you're working, you know somebody who's experiencing a spiritually dry time, you need to encourage them while they're experiencing this you know, spiritual depression Keep telling God you're not experiencing him. Keep telling God of your spiritual dryness. Tell him all about your, 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 the, the, the sense that you feel cast down. Tell him about your emotional deprivation that you are experiencing. Because too many times, under pressure and under duress, the one thing that believers stop doing is praying. And when you're under duress, it's not like you need to pray these incredible theological prayers that we're all going to put in a book and you're going to package it up and you know, we're all going to buy your book, you know. I was spiritually depressed, here's my wonderful prayers, you know. Part of praying is simply keep telling God what you're dealing with. Keep telling him, I'm not sensing you, I don't experience you, where are you? And keep doing that. It's a important way to deal with the spiritual reality of spiritual dryness and distance from God. That's the first response. There's a second response is you've got to learn to preach to yourself. It's so easy to let yourself and your mind 
run off and speak to you. I don't know, I've got a voice in my head, okay, I'm not crazy, but there's a little voice in my mind, and it, 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 it's not a very pleasant voice, um, because it, it can be loud, and it can talk to me, but I've had many times where I've thought, oh, you know, where, where the voice is telling me, given your circumstances, Troxel, panic, freak out. My wife reminds me of this uh, a lot, where I was doing this, um, uh, this youth event. This is back when I was a youth pastor. Um, and we, we, we were renting a whole uh, health club, and they had several racquetball courts. And I thought that students would really like to play racquetball. So I was worried about getting enough rackets to play. And all I kept doing was talking about rackets. There was this voice in my head. You got to get rackets. You got to get rackets. The students are going to want to play. There's, say, five courts, and we need to buy 10 people. And then maybe if they play doubles, we need 20 rackets so everyone can play. And I just kept talking about the rackets. And this voice kept saying, you got to panic. You got to get the rackets. You got to get the rackets. You got to get the rackets. I freaked out about the rackets. Nobody played racquetball that night. My wife still reminds me sometimes when she sees the voice in my head where I'm starting to panic and she, she, she'll say, you'll look right at me, stop talking about the rackets. There's a voice that's going to talk to you, but you've got to start talking to that. And the psalmist preaches to himself. Three different times we've already seen it. The psalmist asked himself a hard question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He says that in verse 5. He says it in verse 11. He said it in verse 5 in chapter 43. Normally we let our, our self-talk dominate us, but we need to preach to it and ask ourselves hard questions about ourselves. Why are you cast down? He's talking to himself. He's attempting to determine, really, what is the cause of you being so downcast? And of course, he goes on to say three times, hope in the Lord, right? Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He repeats that three times in both of these psalms. Because I think what the psalmist is, is showing us is that when we are in this difficult situation, we've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. Why are we so downcast? And it's connected to our hopes, asking us to examine our hearts and find out what were we really hoping for that's not happening, that's pushing us in this spiritual dry condition. And the only way you're going to do that, you've got you to turn off your phone, you've got to turn off the TV, you've got to think about this and start talking to yourself. Asking yourself the hard question, but you also preach to yourself when you remind yourself that your only hope is God plus nothing else. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. If you want to, you should get that book. If you don't have the book, you need to buy it and read it tonight. Okay? Get it on your Kindle. This is what he talks about when he says what Psalm 42 and 43 is about. He, he said, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's another man within us, so to speak. And you've got to handle that other person who's speaking to you, yourself. 
Do not listen to him. Turn on him, speak to him, condemn him, upbraid him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. He says this another way. He says, talk to yourself. And though the devil will suggest that you, because you do not feel you are not a Christian, say, no, I do not feel anything, but whether I feel or not, I believe the scripture, I believe God's word is true, and I will rest my soul on it. I will believe in it, in it come what may. So you ask yourself the hard questions. Where is your hope? And then you tell yourself, your only hope is in God. And you've got to speak and preach to yourself. And that's the second response. There's one, the third response. You have to learn to reorient your heart around the steadfast love of God. Notice what verse 8 says. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock. My, my, my rock. And of course he's still pouring out his heart at the same time. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He says at the end in verse 5. Uh, verse 4 of, of, of chapter 43. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God my God. Unless your hearts get refilled with an experience of God's steadfast love, we're never going to comp- consistently put our hope in God. We will look to all kinds of other things for stability, security, joy, satisfaction, and purpose. And of course, none of those other things are going to work. None of them. I don't know how many times I've counseled many, many over the last 30 years or so who put their hope in their career only to have their company get sold and everybody lost their job at their location. You put your hope in, in, in your children and, 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 and listen, your children at various times will be going well, but sometimes they will struggle and where will that put you? Or you put your hope in your, in, your, in your athletic abilities or your music abilities or academic achievement or the fact that you want to get a, you know, a tenure job you know, after you get your PhD. And it, I hope it happens for you. I've prayed for many of you that it will happen, but it, it doesn't always happen. And then what? Some of us get a lot of hope and joy from things that are so silly and inconsequential. It's amazing. This week was, was, there was a couple of days this week that were not the best days at work and I got excited and I, my mood changed because my beloved Texas Rangers won a game. That's stupid. Texas Rangers are one of the few teams that have never won the World Series and I don't think this year will be any different. But I got a little hopeful. Keeping the steadfast love of God in Jesus front and center in our hearts, making it our real hope, our actual hope, our functional hope, our joy is a cure for living well in a broken world. 
As I close, let me just say this. Jesus says seven statements on the cross of Jesus Christ. When he's on the cross, he says seven things. One of them is, I thirst. We read it earlier today. Certainly Jesus was thirsty. I mean, when you're crucified, you're going to get thirsty. He was out in the sun. He, yes, he was thirsty. But I think there was far more that he meant by that. I think when Jesus is saying, I thirst, yes, he was physically thirsty. But I think in that moment, as our sins are being placed upon him, Jesus, for the very first time in all eternity, is now experiencing spiritual dryness in his relationship with Father God. He, he, he's not experiencing that relationship. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one of the other statements he makes on the cross. He is taking the sin of the world and experiencing ultimate spiritual dryness so that we, those of us who know Jesus Christ, why we might feel spiritually dry at times with God, we can know for sure because we have the steadfast love of God that even though we feel distant from God, we are not actually distant from God because Jesus made himself actually spiritually distant from God so that we would never be. And so when we see Jesus say, I thirst... his ultimate thirst that Jesus experienced was so that even in our times of spiritual thirst and spiritual depression even we may feel alone but we are not and when our hearts grab hold of the steadfast love of God in Christ our spiritual thirst our downcast emotions can be dealt with and we can endure it's not easy it's not magically going to all necessarily go away but we can make it through because deep down we will know that no matter how we feel and what we may be personally experiencing, deep down we will know that we are loved by an almighty God in Jesus. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I suspect there are a number of people in this room right now that are experiencing spiritual dryness they are downcast. They are experiencing real spiritual depression in some way. And we also probably know of people who are experiencing that kind of situation, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to use your word, Psalm 42, in a gracious, loving, careful, honest, appropriate way, in a timely way, to point ourselves and to point others to the only hope we can have, which is found in the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.